turn over to Luke, the 8th chapter. We've been going through Luke pretty much on a chapter-by-chapter basis. We noted that of the synoptic Gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that uh, Luke is in more of chronological order uh, than the other three. In fact, if you're studying a harmony of the Gospel, Luke makes a good one to use as a basis. We've also noted that uh, most of Mark can be found in Matthew and Luke. Uh, the vast majority of Mark found in both Matthew and Luke. We refer to these three as the synoptic Gospels because that they tend to deal with the same events and same locations and all in the life of Jesus. Contrast that with John, and 92% of the material in John is absolutely unique to John, not found in any one of the other Gospels. And so the indication is that John is written after these three and that he's aware of this information and purposely supplements it. And of course, he's writing for, for a different reason. Uh, at the time that uh, Luke writes, uh, Luke <coughs> writes as one that is not an eyewitness. Uh, he tells us at the very beginning that he's writing as a historian uh, who has interviewed and talked with the apostles and other eyewitnesses of these materials. Uh, the indication is that, that either he has uh, read Mark or there is a document uh, called a Q document that is uh, circulating uh, at this time that both Mark, Luke, and Matthew have access to and tend to use it as a, as a strong basis all, all the way through their writings. But anyway, the vast part of Mark is found in Luke. Uh, Luke <coughs> is easy when you have a study, or I think most of us here, maybe all, are looking at it from a Christian standpoint. When you're studying with anybody that is not a Christian from the Gospels, Luke, in my judgment, is the best one to use because it's, it's written by a Gentile, and written uh, from a historical perspective, and it, as opposed to Matthew having been written primarily uh, for the Jew and from a Jewish background and trying to prove that Jesus is, is the Messiah. But he writes uh, as more like a Gentile historian would today, and the fact that he is very well educated, obviously intelligent, uh, the book itself has a very rich vocabulary, for example, uh, vocabulary far richer than that of Mark. And he was aware of the people that were involved in the events, and he researched it, does not come with this background, and this, this is his conclusion. And so when we read it, you can read it as uh, material that was written in that way and that was completed and circulated among the people at a time when the people who were involved in these events were alive. And the acid test of any historical work is whether or not it was written and circulated at a time when people who were alive and could contest it uh, had access to it. And Luke, uh, Luke along with the other Gospels, meets, meets that criteria. Okay, so far... As we move into the 8th chapter, we've looked at uh, certain things in the life of Jesus, uh, those things that uh, make him unique, 
and stand out. We've looked at the record of the miracles. Uh, we've noted that although uh, you and I were not there, uh, we did not see these miracles, but there are certain things that we can note about them, and that is, among other things, that they were not done in a showy type way, but there is a specific reason. There's no money involved. Uh, nobody's making money off the miracles. Uh, they're always in such a way that that they obviously circumvent the laws of nature. Uh, there's nobody that comes forth with hurtings in their head or bowels or something of that nature that you cannot see, and then they claim they've been healed. But rather we deal with lepers and blind and dead and events that uh, people were aware of the individual and we have them cured in an absolutely instantaneous way. And we noted also that when we look at the works outside the New Testament documents, for example, some of the Jewish works uh, written by those who were not Christians, like in the Jewish Gemara, they acknowledge these recorded miracles. Uh, they obviously don't believe in Jesus or they would have become a Christian, but they acknowledge that Jesus uh, actually led people to believe in him by performing these works that they think of as terms of works of sorcery, uh, just as you read in the Bible, the works of the devil itself. But the point is they acknowledge that he did these things that these people perceived uh, to be miraculous and, and actually record them and actually became, became Christians as a result of it. Okay, we've looked at him as a person. We've looked at the recorded miracles. We've looked some at, uh, at various prophecies that are being fulfilled. And we've looked at his teaching. And then as we, we get into the 8th chapter, we have a section where he's going to talk about the, the kingdom of God and the, the good news of it. You and I read it from the perspective of somebody that's had it proclaimed this way from the first. But to really uh, appreciate what Jesus is saying here, you'd need to put yourself in the mind <coughs> of the initial audience who heard it. Uh, this is almost 2,000 years ago. And again, uh, what was the concept that they had, the Jews at this time? What was their concept of this kingdom? The physical kingdom like David. Okay, a physical kingdom. Uh, like David, capital city was Jerusalem, the temple was going to stand, uh, the Messiah would come and would live forever on this earth and reign from Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, hold your place there and flip over to John uh, 12, 34. After Jesus had spoke about his death in the 30th through the 33rd verse, then look at verse 34. The crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of, of Man? Uh, their understanding, and by the way, when they say heard from the law, what they really mean, is, what you're reading here is the interpretation of the law by the religious leaders of that day. The Messiah was to live forever. Uh, on this earth. There was to be a general resurrection on this earth, the just and the unjust. And the rest of the world would be blessed through the reign of this Jewish Messiah uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, the people who had automatic entrance into this kingdom was those of the seed of Abraham. 
And that's why John the Baptist makes this statement that, that God could raise up seed to Abraham from the rocks out there. <coughs> that uh, their entire concept of the kingdom revolved around tracing your lineage back to Abraham. They would be the true children of the kingdom itself. Well then here at this time, Jesus is leading them up to the point, they still don't understand it at the time he says this, where the Messiah, the, the king, is not going to reign on this earth and that there's not going to be any high positions in this kingdom. Uh, there's not going to be any central city or, or central uh, country uh, and that the, there's not going to be any uh, tracing of one's lineage that is essential that the kingdom is going to be a spiritual entity that's as simple as people on this earth who have their lives controlled by the words of Christ. And, and, that would, that would, and, and he himself would not be on this earth. And again, you and I, this is what we're familiar with. It was absolutely revolutionary at the time that Jesus said it because it was so contrary uh, to what they thought in their own interpretation. Uh, Mark, you want to start there in the 8th chapter? And let's go ahead and, let's see, read on down to, uh, uh, start on around, and let's see. Uh, let's go through the 21st verse, and then we'll stop, go back and look at the parts. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who, were, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cousin, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were com coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him, What? this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is we have Jesus traveling, going into uh, all the various cities, and verse 1, they're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Keep in mind when he talks about that, uh, uh, the Jews had been looking forward to this for centuries now. Now, at the time that Jesus talks about this good news of the kingdom, uh, Israel, going back to the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the time of Daniel, at about 605, when uh, Babylon first came against Judah, and carried some, including Daniel, into captivity. About 597 B.C., they carried off Ezekiel and a group of others. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and set up their own puppet government, and carried most of the 
uh, Israelites into history. In fact, that's where the, the Jews first came up with the name Jews. They were from Judah, and so Jew was actually a slang name given to them by the Babylonians. All right, right, but going back before that, in 721, 722 B.C., the Assyrians had defeated the ten tribes of Israel and carried them into captivity. So what we have now, by the time we hit 586, the temple is destroyed. The city is destroyed. Uh, the Jews, the Israelites, are a scattered people. There is no kingdom of Israel, uh, as we think of the group that started back with uh, Moses and then having their first king in Saul and coming down to that point. They are a scattered, defeated people. Okay, we come all the way down. Uh, the temple has been built and destroyed and built again. The temple they have now has uh, been constructed again by Herod. Uh, Israel does not have control of their own land. Rome is the conqueror of the civilized world in this day. So if you're an Israelite listening to Jesus now, you do not have control of your own country. You do not have sovereignty in your own country. Uh, you are under the control of Rome. And Rome controls you and they control your government and you pay taxes to Rome. That's why they hated the publican so much. The publican was a, was a citizen of Israel who was working for Rome and collecting taxes. Well, but you've had all these promises uh, in, the, in your Old Testament scriptures of a day when a Messiah will come. And he will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Remember, Daniel forecast the, the fall of these pagan empires. And so you're a Jew living at this time. You're very aware that, that Babylon fell, and Medo-Persia rose and fell, and Greece rose and fell. And you know that all of that was in perfect harmony with what Daniel and the other prophets said. And then Rome, that fourth great empire, is here. And so if you're a Jew living at this time, you are literally at fever pitch waiting for your Messiah and the kingdom of Israel to be established because that fourth world empire is now on the scene in Rome. But here's your, your idea about it. You're, you're a captive people. You've been controlled for all of these centuries. And you're looking for the Messiah to come, and he's to be the son of David. And he's to be a great king like David, and he's going to lead you in mustering an army and overthrowing Rome. And when you overthrow Rome, you're going to have your country back, and then you, Israel, it'd be like in the days of David. You'll conquer all these countries around you. You will control the civilized world, and the world will be blessed for, with your Messiah. And this is the concept they have in their mind. That's what they're looking forward to. Remember James and John? Uh, the questions that they asked Jesus concerning the kingdom, well, anybody remember? What did they want to know? Yeah, and, the, and, and, and then they sent Obama up there to talk to him about this. You know, we want to be number one and number two, you know, when, when you get ready. And when, when Jesus began to talk about the soldiers uh, coming to get him, what did Peter do? Got him a sword, and he was ready to fight. Uh, and Peter's been wrongly called a coward. He wasn't a coward. He had his sword and was ready to fight. Uh, he was baffled uh, in that Jesus took his sword away from him and, and was going to let them take him off. And see, the reason he was so baffled, and, he, and then he denies him three times, a crucified Christ or Messiah is no Messiah at all. Uh, and, and so this is their concept. 
Well, Jesus now, all the way through, is trying to break this down, and he knows they don't understand this. So you read statements like this. Look at, uh, in verse uh, 8, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. To others I speak in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What he was saying, God didn't do anything mystical to anybody's mind. What he was saying was so out of harmony with their understanding of the kingdom and their interpretation that they simply couldn't understand what he was saying. And so put yourself in the position of somebody that has believed a particular doctrine for all these years, and now the Messiah comes, and what he's telling you is completely different than, than what you've been taught all these years. And so the difficulty was not in what he was saying. What he's saying is actually pretty simple. Uh, but th what we've just read that sounds so simple to us is not so simple if you've been taught something else all your life. And it was going to be something that's very difficult. And so he says, let him that has ears understand. Okay, now, notice he, he nails down the fact that the seed of this kingdom is to be the word. And he gives an excellent illustration uh, with the parable. But as the, the word is sown, what is also obvious concerning this kingdom and, and the people that will enter it and stay in it? Okay, it's going to be a matter of individual choice. Uh, are there going to be some people that think they they want some of it and then decide they don't? Yeah. Going to be going to be those that that think they really want to be in. They hear this this good news uh, of the kingdom. <clears throat> And, of course, when it initially goes out, uh, it's going to be, well, hey, you know, that uh, he has risen from the dead, he's conquered life, he offers remission of sins, uh, this is great news, you know, and you really feel great about it. And so there's going to be a lot of people that make the decision to buy into this, but then what, what would they find out that went with this in the first century? Okay, so then there were going to be those that... See, if you were a Jew buying into this, the majority of the Jews were not going to accept it. And to the majority of the Jews, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And you would actually be doing God a favor and having in stamping out Christianity. And so you would be in a situation where you would be separated from members of your own family. Remember Jesus uh, said that, uh, that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. There would be division within the family, father and son, mother, daughter, etc., so you would be in that kind of thing where you would be divided from members of your own family. You would be suffering persecution. And so you'd think about this, and although on the one hand it sounded like good news, you just may not want to pay the cost. And so there would be those that would opt out uh, as a result of it. Well, in our society, we're, we're, in, we're in our environment, this is really not a problem, is it, in the, in the United States? Uh, you know, if you were in Saudi Arabia it would be a problem. Uh, you may be fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but may decide that you didn't want to have what you might have to put up with as, as a result of in, embracing that. And same with other parts. 
what part probably fits our society so far as people that are going to enter the kingdom there? Okay, the people that would, uh, uh, verse 14, uh, those who would hear, but then they would be choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And as a result, they never would mature. And so again, that, that it's interesting. Now, I'm going to look at this from still an, another way when you see these different things happening. If God is doing anything mystical to the mind to make it receptive to the word, I can't see it personally. I don't know. The word, the seed of the kingdom is the word. And there are some that have it, uh, when he says the devil would steal it out of their heart, keep in mind the, the word devil or Satan is just simply a word that means adversary. Uh, any uh, any uh, teaching, for example, in, as you go through your school system today, and you have some of the finest minds intellectually believing organic evolution, who have made the decision to be atheist, and they are given all kinds of sophisticated arguments to support their position, uh, this very well could make you biased uh, against the information before you even get started. Well, see, they had their philosophers and their teachers, and there were Jews that were very biased against it to start from. So there would be those that were, in other words, he, God doesn't step in. When he talks about the devil yanking the word out so they didn't even believe, or the adversary, you don't see God stepping in and doing anything about it. If they, it's their choice. If they want to allow this to happen to their mind, they can allow it. Okay. Then when he talks about the persecution and those falling away, does God even step in and stop the persecution? That's interesting. The, the persecution takes place. And then uh, when he talks about the cares and the riches and pleasures and so that choke it out, uh, it seems to me that uh, God has left the choice of what to do with the information and the choice of how you're going to let this information affect you strictly up to the human being. At least I can't see anything else. That uh, it's Look at verse 15. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word. And what, what causes that noble and good heart? If God does it in some mystical way, then we're going to have to ask the question, why didn't he do it to the rest of them? What glory would that be? Okay. What it, uh, right, that, that's a good point. That, uh, if, uh, what glory is it to God if I choose him only because he does something mystical to my mind to cause me? And by the way, the, uh, the, uh, although they don't practice what they preach, they, at least by definition, the, the most prevailing method of salvation taught in the various uh, uh, Protestant groups is the fact that the Holy Spirit regenerates your mind and gives you the gift of repentance and faith. And then, but in that man is in a depraved condition, this of course goes back to John Calvin, but Calvin, is, uh, his uh, belief was has been very influential on most of the Protestant groups. I say they don't practice it. The truth is they just simply present the message. People make their decision. It's just they give credit 
to other sources. But still, you, you have the individual there responsible. All right, now, why is that important for us to understand as Christians that uh, the individual is totally responsible for what happens to that information, that we've got information going in, and then we have a, an individual that is totally responsible for how he deals with that. How does that affect you when you deal with other people as opposed to coming from the background of I've just got to tell them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit will get in there and regenerate their mind and, and save them? How does that affect you differently in your approach to people? You need to be able to present the right information and, and be, be able to substantiate it. Okay. If, uh, if I'm operating with the concept that conversion is the Holy Spirit regenerating somebody's mind in some mystical way, then I just kind of need to get in there with a little bit about Jesus, but the real responsibility is on God in some mystical sense. If nothing is happening to their heart except this information, then that begins to put a responsibility on us as to how we handle uh, that information. Uh, remember the way Paul wrote to Timothy and said to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be put to shame, rightly handling the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15, that uh, obviously that, that Timothy was going to have to diligently study that in order to handle it in a right way and stand approved by God. Okay, it also puts responsibility on that other person, doesn't it? That uh, you, you've got responsibility to do something, but it puts all kinds of responsibility on the other person now, this is interesting, too, especially in our society, because we are now uh, almost a century uh, after the influence of, of Sigmund Freud, who was an atheist, by the way. And uh, the reason in our society that we do not put full responsibility for actions on the part of the individu individual is because of the influence of Freud on philosophy and all. When people do wrong things, they do it because of what? Environment or they're, Right. Their they're environment. Uh, it's, it's that. And, we, uh, and they're not sinners, but they're sick. Sick. Victims. Victims. <coughs> sick. And so the person who smacks you upside the head or steals your wallet or something that, uh, you know, you may have reminded him of somebody that did something to him when he was eight years of age, you know, or, or whatever. But anyway, we have a situation where the uh, where people are almost helpless uh, with their environment. And so we, we mistreat our mate, we mistreat our children, we go through life, I'm saying, doing these things. Uh, and we mistreat others, and, and we, we go back here and it's because of, well, if there's nothing to you but genes and environment, that's, that's accurate. All blame has been taken off of the individual. There is no resp individual responsibility. Right. right, and we even make statements that, uh, you know, that once the child's personality gets set, that you can't change, you know, and that, uh, and that it, it, we make all those observations and about this kind of thing. But what happens here with the kingdom now, according to what we're seeing and what actually transpires? What about uh, environment? And what about individuals? And what about their potential to change? 
Okay, they, they came from the same environment, right? Some accepted it because they were willing to be honest with the information. You referred to a good and honest heart. Wasn't it First Corinthians where he says some of you were adulterers and all that? Yeah, I think turn over to First Corinthians six. I believe that's what you're having reference to. But I'm talking about even the uh, but that's right on the change in what Mark said in First Corinthians six. Uh, Verses ten, not beginning nine. All right, read that. Good. See, yeah. yeah, let's let somebody else my throats. Okay, so start with uh, verse 9 then. Steve, you want to read that? Start with <coughs> verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, now look at that. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you can't remain wicked and be in the kingdom, but don't be deceived. Okay, now notice now he says, neither sexually immoral and then adulterers, male prostitutes. Uh, by the way, that had reference to their... They're fertility gods. The Baal was a male fertility god. The Asherah was a female fertility god. And the way they worshipped these fertility gods was through the act of fornication. And so these, they had male prostitutes and they also had female shrine prostitutes. Nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor groody, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom. That's what some of you were. Okay? So the... These people, some of them, they were fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, etc. And they changed. And, and according to this here, they, they made the decision to change based on the influence of information on their mind. Okay. I have a question. Is this, would this indicate then that people who are, say, homosexual or drunkards in particular are so out of choice? Yes and no. Uh, yeah, I believe yes, you're responsible. But the, uh, I don't think that, a, that like the men that are homosexual, I really don't believe that most of them just say, I want to be a homosexual. I think, they, I think they're being honest with their feelings and things of, of that nature. But there, I believe there are things that have been wrong in their background from a psychological standpoint, their environment and all that has led them to those areas. But the point is that they have the ability to be changed uh, and to repent and to go in another direction. I think that was and, his point. It says some of you were homosexuals, but you were washed and, and sanctified. So apparently right. they, were cha they changed. They changed. So, and, so apparently they can. When we studied with... Uh, <laughs> Like around here, of course, there's not much, but we had, Barbara and I had an, an experience in New Jersey where we had studied with a homosexual that was converted up there. In fact, uh, you know, he still, every Christmas I get a card from him. But uh, he started coming to the study. And one of the things that when I talk with him one-on-one, -on -one, and, you know, and he's talking about the difficulty involved and the attraction for the male and everything like that. And I asked him, did, did he believe that his attraction for a male 
was any stronger than a heterosexual's attraction to the opposite sex. And he agreed that it wasn't. And I said, then, I said, you'll agree then that your attraction for a male is no stronger than my attraction to a female. That, and he agreed. He said, that, that's, that's right. And I said, well, then, it's from the standpoint of control, even from the heterosexual realm, God expects the male and female to exercise control there so that sexual relationship for them outside of marriage is wrong. And then we went on to the point that there have been people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, that Paul, the apostle Paul, Barnabas, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Jesus never married or knew sexual relations out of, out of setting themselves apart for the kingdom of God. And so the point is that this is something, no matter what tendency you might have because of your environment and the things that are, have been psychologically wrong, it is something that can be controlled. All right? the, what bothers me in our society is operating from the biblical approach, you inject in people's mind, listen, you're made in the image of God, and no matter what your desires or tendencies, you can control them. I may desire a million dollars that's laying in front of me, but I don't have to reach out and grab it. And I may want to pop somebody who has did something wrong to me, but I can control myself. I really don't have to pop them. And I can desire sexually and still control myself. And so the first approach was that you're in control of yourself and you make decisions. And I believe that when you look at the kingdom and the way Jesus is presenting, that you've got everybody out there as somebody that's made in the image of God. And they are a spiritual being living in a physical body and they control their actions. And no matter how many wrongs that they may be involved in, even homosexuality, they can make the decision to change their mind and go in the other direction. On the other hand, when you leave the biblical teaching, you wind up with people, when you tell somebody they're sick, on the one hand you give them an excuse to do wrong, but you've taken away any incentive for them ever completely rehabilitating themselves. As long as this person believes they're sick, then, then what, what they're really saying is, you make allowances for me. Uh, you make allowances for my drinking. You make allowances for my drugs. You make allowances for the fact that I blow up and smack people around. Or you make allowances for my sexual permissiveness. Uh, you, just, uh, you just come to that I'm this way, and therefore you make allowances with me. I'm sick or addicted or whatever. Well, the, the approach with Jesus was that you're made in the image of God. The seed of God's kingdom is his word. You make the decision as to how you're going to receive that information and that you can act on that information. And then uh, he goes ahead after, after these statements and makes it clear that he expects them to act on it. In fact, flip on back here to the, his conclusion, one of his sermons, in the sixth chapter of Luke. <coughs> Beginning with verse uh, 46. Uh, John, you want to read that, please? Verse 46 through, uh, through the end of that chapter in Luke 6. Why do you call me the Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. When a flood rose, torrent burst against the house and could not shake it, because it had been built well. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, 
and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Okay, look at the statement. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then he talks about somebody who comes to him and hears his words and puts them into practice. <coughs> and he says, this guy is the one that is building his life in such a way that will stand uh, anything that's thrown against it. And so, and this was the, the entire Sermon on the Mount, wasn't it? The, the, the teachings that went out, and each time it's, it's your choice. All right. You see what, I think what it means with, uh, and by the way, uh, so far as the message that you and I have for others, what's involved in this sowing the seed of the kingdom? He says the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. How do you relate to that in everyday life as a Christian? I mean, what, what is involved in sowing the seed of the kingdom? And first of all, we've seen the realization here that God's not going to do it for you. Uh, he's given you the seed, and that you've got a responsibility, and then the other fellow, nothing's mystically going to happen to his mind. It's just his mind and the information you're getting to him, then he makes a, a decision there. Well, what, what's involved in, in sowing the seed? I think it doesn't necessarily mean that, that you go around preaching a sermon every day or whatever, but by your life and your example and... Um, and, and obviously you teach when opportunity arises, but just, I think, little things on teaching your children, looking for opportunities to sow little seeds of the kingdom or, or little okay. ways that you can implant when you prove the word. Your freedom of choice, when you choose to do good instead of choosing to do wrong like everybody else would. Okay. And your very life. And how did, how did Jesus did himself sow the seed? Like we're talking, did he? Uh, it's interesting when you think about the teaching of Jesus. We uh, we have been so church acclimated that we think only in terms of you know get them to the building and we got this prepared, sometimes even artificial sermon uh, that is there that may or not may not be what what anybody needs. But think of Jesus as you follow him through the Gospels. And his teaching really is in response to their questions and their situations. Uh, they ask him about divorce. He talks about it. Uh, and, and, and they ask him about these other things. And he talks about it. And or they will be doing something. Like, for example, that uh, uh, he'll look at the, the Pharisees who are getting very upset about the fact that he's associating with harlots and publicans and, and the real ugly people in society and he's out there just mingling with them and eating with them and associating with them and he just notices that they're looking at him with disdain and saying some ugly things about him and so he uses that as an opportunity to teach them about the kingdom of God and so we wind up with the parable of the prodigal son or the lady that lost one coin and and went, out, went looking for it or the person that lost one out of a hundred sheep and, and left everything and went after it and all of those, those three beautiful parables that we have were in response to really uh, an ugly spiritual thing on the part of the Pharisees. And the end result is we wind up with that parable. And then when he gives us like the rich man and Lazarus, he's looking at their attitude. And, and, and there's a statement made that the Pharisees loved riches. And they were real disturbed about some things he's saying. So the next thing we know here, we're getting the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And so Jesus goes through life 
and he deals with the with their their situations in life with information from God and the kingdom of God was going to operate on these principles well then how do you and I translate that into action so far as the sowing of the seed do you all of us uh, okay all of us like when you get our age and and the young married couples and all like that you're going to meet all kinds of other married couples on the job and in other areas <coughs> whose marriage is on the verge of going under and who have honest problems and, and questions. Uh, when you're in my age, you're, you're meeting people that are, that are having problems rearing their children. Uh, Johnny or Susie is into this or that, or they don't longer respect authority, and the parents are beside themselves. And there's the opportunity to, to say a whole lot of things from this perspective. Or you might, if you're, if you're a young man or a young woman in any kind of a setting there at college, that you regularly are going to have to deal with the situation. Uh, uh, am I going to have sexual relations out of marriage? Uh, do we go to this movie? Do we read this particular uh, thing here? Uh, do I date this person? Uh, how far do I go on a date? Uh, all these kinds of questions come up. And so if you're a Christian and, and you're in the kingdom and your mind is saturated, then you're so in the kingdom when you take God's approach to all of that. And so when, and again, I don't know how you do it unless your own mind is saturated with those things. And so then if you are saturated with that information, there's an opportunity to take that approach. Well, another thing about taking that approach, and we uh, sometimes have thought of sowing the seed from the standpoint of just quoting a passage in the Bible and saying, you know, it, well, it says this in John chapter 3 and verse 9. But what happens if you're reasoning with a person who really doesn't have all that much respect for the Bible? Based on, uh, and by the way, I think you can be a pretty sincere individual, and if all you know about the Bible is Jimmy Swaggart and Jim and Tammy and a lot of other things out there, I can see why you wouldn't have a lot of respect for it. It won't mean a whole lot to them. Won't, right. It's a, well, you believe that. But the thing of it is, if this is truth, then it ought to work in the arena of life, right? In fact, if it doesn't work in the arena of life, that's pretty good evidence it's not true. And so that I think the best way to approach it is from the standpoint of, and remember you read like Jesus spoke with authority. If you're dealing with information that you know is true, then you can speak out in a very authoritative way behind In other words, speak with confidence. By, by authority, I mean speak with confidence that I know this is truth. It works. Try it. You'll like it. And that I think a better approach than just quoting a specific verse is taking those principles and then applying it to the issue. And what is true, I believe, can always be shown to work in contrast with the others. Uh, for example, that uh, when, when I work with teenagers, and we're talking about the, the relationships and the dating and all, you can say, hey, look at the lives of these people over here that are sexually permissive and are, think they're having all this fun now. Look at the consequences that is there. Look at what they're doing to themselves. I mean, do you really want those consequences? Because those consequences go with that lifestyle. And on the other hand, look at something over here in contrast that is following the the principles laid down here. You know, where do you want to be 10 years? 
uh, from now. But I'm saying that with all of these areas, whether you're picking a mate or everything, that Christians, on a daily basis, if you're, if you're in a funeral home and somebody's dead, I don't know any hope outside of Jesus. That I don't, I don't know of anything anybody has to say. And so you've got a wonderful opportunity to talk about the resurrection from a standpoint of the evidence for the resurrection. Again, I think not just to say the Bible. Everybody knows the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead. But you've got an opportunity to present the evidence for it. And remember, the Bible, we know, contains the evidence. But I'm saying just present the evidence. Uh, for the, the actual evidence for his resurrection from the dead. I believe all of those things are involved in sowing the seed. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in his environment. We just simply adapt that message to our environment. And then we sow it knowing that everybody has a certain responsibility towards that information. Well then, looking at what you see here, should you get disturbed if you do the best that you can and you're just simply not effective in reaching the other person? Looks like that will make you doubt if you think the Holy Spirit is responsible for them believing you or not. Because if they don't believe you, then you're thinking something's wrong with the Holy Spirit. Right. So then you're going to start doubting. By the way, the point you brought up, brought up there, uh, Darren, is exactly what has happened sometimes to uh, people who have made the decision even when it comes to how you handle the church, a lot of people leave the church because they get disgusted with some of their experiences with people that really are not spiritual. But in the church, if you'll keep in mind this parable of Jesus and realize that there's going to be those people who, on the one hand, believe because, after all, who, who doesn't want to be live forever? I mean, who doesn't want to believe that? And so they... They hear the evidence, they, they come to believe in all, but yet it's obvious that they're allowing the world and, and the things of the world to, check, to choke out all influence of that. And so then rather than leave the church, just look at that and say, hey, all within the church, we've got really all, all of that parable right in the church, don't we? I mean, we have people that become Christians and, and they allow the world and the cares and of the world to choke out the, the influence of the word. We have people that become Christians and then when they go through some real difficult situation in their life, uh, they, they go by the wayside. We have individuals who become Christians and they allow somebody through philosophical reasoning to cause them to reject uh, what, what they had had at one time. And then there are those that uh, go on and, and do something with the information. So I think if we, if we see this parable, you won't go out here looking for a perfect church because you're not going to find it. And you, and you won't get discouraged and quit the church because there's a lot of people in it that's not what they should be. But you realize that uh, each individual makes decisions and you have a responsibility for your own heart and you got a, you've got a responsibility for sowing that seed uh, in the mind of others. Dad, a uh, uh, general comment here on the, this notion of the kingdom of heaven. It started way back with John, John the Baptist, and he he preached repentance, uh, and that the kingdom of heaven was near. Jesus picked up on that, and he talked about the kingdom of heaven in in terms of uh, repentance and in terms of righteousness. Only the you know if you live like this, only people who are like this will be in the kingdom of heaven. And um, but I find it amazing. 
he he knew he had to know when he says the kingdom is near what they were going to think and I find it amazing that he did not say what it wasn't I mean that would have been a very easy way to have uh, have addressed some of the misconceptions that were going to be there until uh, until after Pentecost um, but he did but when did he say what it wasn't? He said the kingdom is not something that you'll be able to say here it is or there it is. He yeah. says, but the kingdom is within you. Yeah. But like in John, this was did Luke he, did 17. He ever, you know, he, what I'm saying is, did he specifically say, look, you know, this this notion y'all have of a, of a, of a physical king coming, you know, um, uh, son of David going to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. Um, this is all wrong. I mean, it seems to me he never really got very... Explicit about that. Well, he did, and he he didn't. Remember, uh, right before he's crucified, and he's talking to the apostles, and he said in John 16, beginning with verse 12, he said, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it, but the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. You're, you're not ready for calculus if you haven't had algebra. You're not ready for algebra until you've had math. And I think in the in the same way, that in Mark 4 and verse 33, there's a statement, he taught them as they were able to hear him. And I think, in fact, the point you're bringing out, I think, is, is maybe good for us to remember, too, that, that a lot of times a person may not be ready for this particular truth because he doesn't understand this over here. And it, and it might be a mistake to get into this. And, for example, Jesus never did introduce him to the fact that the Gentile was going to come in equal with the Jew. He told them to go to the only the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and yet knowing all the time the Gentile was coming in. Well, if he had, you know, if he had uh, preached what the kingdom of heaven wasn't in the beginning, I'd say there was a good chance that uh, he would have lost a lot of his following. He may have lost it he all. Maybe lost it all. He lost know? it all. That. Uh, and, um, so he, I think you know that it, there is something. And I, and I think the, on the point you're making, like when he says sowing the seed of the kingdom, the seed being the word, that. Uh, Every discipline in life, we, we actually grow in our understanding. And just like when we, in our school system, we start little kids out in the first grade, and then we graduate all the way through college, and we know that even a very smart child, uh, we, could, we could ruin the whole process if we gave him too much too early. And I think in the same vein, you see this in his soul in the kingdom, and I believe in the same way that we can learn something from it too that uh, when you're talking to somebody, we need to be cognizant of their own beliefs and environment and background and use good judgment in the way we deal with these people. I, I, I think we've run people off. I honestly believe that the way I preached when I was younger probably ran off as many people as we reached. Uh, you know, from the, 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 I wonder how many times we've had somebody come into our assembly and we get up there and maybe talk on uh, certain uh, judgment-type areas of dress and things of this nature, dealing we uh, There's been churches I can remember that when nobody could wait on the Lord's table, if the, the hair touched the ear, you guys remember back there when you know the boys started first wearing a little longer hair, and there were churches that made statements on this type of thing, that, uh, that we took people that really didn't even believe the Bible, and we're just simply barely coming to Christ and, and got involved in all these little legal arguments and all, and I'm sure run people off when really we should have been 
given them information <coughs> that was appropriate for them at that particular time. Letting people have their misunderstandings for a while. Yeah, if that is, and I'm not saying that anything about the hair, but I'm saying if they, right, that if a person is not fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ and the resurrection is a historical fact, as a result of, of the examination of the evidence, then I think it's crazy to get in an argument with him on some of these other points. I believe it's a mistake for Christians to get into an argument with a non-believer on even homosexuality. And you're not going to, you're not going to win that argument because you believe what you do because you believe this is inspired by God. If that person doesn't believe that, you're going to just turn him off. I think that it would be better to center the discussion on the, the evidence uh, for Jesus being the Messiah, the Bible being inspired, and the evidence for the resurrection. And only after they've been convinced of that do we get into the, the, the other. All those things, you know, there's like, uh, like you said, I think all the laws are, are perfect, and, and, and you can reason with somebody from the standpoint of consequences uh, and benefits, but, but there's a limit to that. Yeah. Uh, and the limit is our, our understanding, for one, and, and for another is our care. I mean, uh, we, take, we, we, uh, we take risk every day. We, we make the decision to do things that uh, we know are not in our long-term best interest. So I think there has to be an overriding reason why to uh, why uh, uh, your uh, behavior is governed in a certain way. Right. Um, you know. Why you're going to change? In other words, conversion comes before that sort of thing. Right. All right. Now, in this context, where Jesus is uh, given this teaching, why are they listening to him, and why are some of them receiving that teaching? I mean, what is happening? What is what is furnishing the basis for their mind? to buy into this and to repent, uh, even though sometimes it steps all over their toes. There's miracles. Okay, the miracles itself. In fact, look up here a little earlier, but in that same eighth chapter, and it mentions that 12 were with him, and they're proclaiming the good news, and says some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna the wife, etc., pardon me, etc., uh, it was the, uh, and over in the previous chapter, we have a situation where there's a miracle that has uh, taken place. So it was the miracles that caused people to, to buy into what he was saying. Because what he was saying stepped all over their toes, went contrary to their understanding, but it was that evidence. I think what we often do today, we go out here and we say the Bible says this and the Bible says that to people who really don't believe the Bible's inspired, and then we, we can't understand it, why they don't just buy into it. And, and we think that they're just going to believe it because we say it. Well, Jesus was performing miracles, and then after Pentecost, when the apostles go out sowing the seed of the kingdom, what is the first thing they always inject in everybody's mind before they get to anything that Jesus said? He was raised. Raised from the dead. The evidence, right? Uh, you look at Pentecost, and he's quoting Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy and say, look, this was fulfilled. But then you've got the eyewitness account of all the apostles of the resurrection. You've got another Old Testament prophecy that's alluded to. He ties all this together and then says, men of Israel know for certain that this Jesus is the Christ. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Okay, they didn't even know what the changes that he wanted them to make, 
but they had simply been convinced that he was raised from the dead and that they had killed the Messiah. Okay, Paul goes into Athens, and what does he reason with those Athenians on? Does he get up there and say, hey, you, uh, you Athenians, you know, some of you are homosexuals and some of you are effeminate and some of you, etc., and I'm here to tell you you're going to hell if you don't quit? It's not his sermon, is it? But he, they are, they're in idolatry, and in a very logical, sensible way, he contrasts his belief in the God of Israel with their idolatry. And he even quotes from their own poets and shows how much more logical his way is than theirs. And then we get from the true God down to the evidence for Jesus before he ever gets into anything that is moral in any way. But I really believe that as Christians, uh, another area I think where we're making a mistake in, in again, not following an example here, the, the abortion situation, when Christians circle these abortion clinics and do all uh, holler at these people and, and we're going to forcefully close them down, well, I believe abortion is wrong also, but I believe that's the wrong way to handle it. I think that to argue with those people, many of which don't even believe in Christ, you come across as just somebody who's trying to force your philosophy of life off on them. I believe the, the approach from sowing the seed of the kingdom is to, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, convince people that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible's inspired. Then, if I believe Jesus is the Son of God and this is inspired, then I'm concerned about what this thing says on those other matters. If I don't believe it, I'm, I'm really not concerned about it. And so Jesus didn't just go around saying these things. There were the miracles there which served as evidence to cause them to consider what he was saying. Paul, do you think that uh, in chapter 8, what, what he was talking about and uh, being descriptive about revealing the true nature of the kingdom, I mean, he says, he says right here, um, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, no hearing they may not understand. So do you think that has reference to that in any way? Has reference to what now? I missed what, the first what, part. Uh, um, I mean, it's like he told them that some of the people got it and some of the people didn't. It was like, you know, well, seeking you shall find. And it's like the people who are really honest about it. Okay, right down here a little further. Look at this verse 18 uh, in that same chapter. Consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even that which he thinks he has will be taken. That the apostles, the twelve here, and these people, they were being honest with the information. And they didn't understand a lot either, but they saw the miracles, and they were like Nicodemus, you know, I know you can't do this unless you come from God. And so the end result of their constantly listening is that they just kept learning and were given more and more and more all the time. And so they were learning this. But there were others out there that were not willing to be honest with the information and, and really wouldn't. Uh, have you ever studied with, uh, I, let's forget about religion, have you ever talked to anybody about something that they had such strong feelings on that they couldn't even stand to discuss it? So there's no way you had it. You didn't even have the opportunity to show what was right because their feelings 
uh, were, were so strong that they couldn't even listen to all the, all the information. I've dealt with parents uh, in the office about a discipline situation with their child, and they were so biased in the direction that their child simply couldn't have done that, that they couldn't even stand to hear the information. I mean, actually become infuriated and mad, and they didn't, didn't even want to hear the, uh, the information. So you can be so biased against a concept. I have uh, what we talked about a little earlier on the Holy Spirit. I've studied with a whole person of a holiness background where we dealt with whether or not the Holy Spirit does anything to your mind separate from information and had them get so tense uh, and, and emotional that they would just have to leave the room. They, I mean, they couldn't even finish out the study on that, on that particular point. Uh, I've seen brethren argue and, and actually have to separate. They were so, each side was so emotional on their point that they couldn't even finish out the discussion in a logical way. Well, Jesus is encountering that among the Jews, and there are some that are becoming infuriated with him, and, they're, and they're, they don't want what he has to say, and there are others that keep listening, and, and the miracles are there, the evidence, and they continue to listen, and as they do, they begin to see more and more and more all the time. What do you, um, how does the, when you say uh, selling the seed, I've always heard, you know, we're responsible for sowing the seed, and God is responsible for the harvest. Well, what part does God take at well, all other than giving us the word? Okay, God has given us the word, and he, like, uh, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How shall they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe unless they be heard? And how shall they hear except the preacher be set? And then faith comes by hearing the word. So there's no question there that, that it's that. Well, God has given the word, but you also have God's providential care involved. And like he says, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and you shall receive. I don't know how God could make that kind of promise except he was providentially involved and knew the hearts of those individuals that will respond. I don't believe the Ethiopian eunuch surprised anybody <coughs> when he obeyed the gospel. God knew before he went there. Paul didn't surprise God when he obeyed the gospel. He had already set him apart from his birth to be a prophet to the Gentiles. And then you have the statement by Paul that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And he says, if God be with us, who can be against us? In Romans 8, verse 28. So you have God with perfect foreknowledge and with perfect knowledge of everybody's heart involved in making sure that those individuals that are seeking do come in contact with, with the truth. And, but he does this without interfering with anybody's decision. <coughs> I mean, whether it's the individual going or the individual that's receiving the word. Uh, anything else they're involved in sowing the seed? What about your own personal life? That was briefly mentioned. I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, I don't even like to hear a person talk if what I see in them is not on par with uh, what they're saying. I've heard preachers uh, before that would present lessons that were good, 
But I had a hard time even listening to the individual because I had so little respect for the person based on their life. Uh, uh, Barbara and I had a relationship with a preacher and a, his wife for a period of time. And we never could understand his wife. You know, he was an excellent speaker. And a very, you know, everybody liked him. You know, he was one of these guys that quick with jokes and things of this nature. Very good speaker, knowledgeable. His wife would miss any service she could. She left the building as soon as the service was over. Uh, you know, everybody wondered how in the world did this guy get stuck with her, you know. And she obviously didn't enjoy uh, the lessons. Well, when it all came out, it found out that he had been abusing her for a period of time. He, he mistreated her. He mistreated his children. Uh, he was a totally different person in his private life with her as to what the church was seeing. Well, she reached the point, and then she confided in us, and we talked with him and all, that uh, it nauseated her to hear him speak. It just actually made her nauseous, and she just she couldn't even stomach uh, hearing him speak because that all the time he's talking, uh, she was relating to the type of person he was in, in, in their life. All right, the same is true with us as Christians as a whole, and I believe that Although we criticize the news media, the, we call it the liberal media, media because they make Christianity look so bad, the truth is they got a lot of ammunition to work with. And there, there is a lot of hypocrisy within the church. And when, when we get on the air and we preach these high and holy messages and all, and yet whether it's Christians in college or Christians in high school or Christians in my age category or Christians in young couples, who are not practiced not in their life, uh, then we make this, I think, look ridiculous. It becomes something that is an ideal thing, but in reality, nobody puts it into practice. And I think that's the way a lot of the world really looks at this. It's an ideal way to live, but the truth is there's not all that many that make an effort to practice it. And I think that each of us need to have it implanted in our mind that when it comes to sowing the seed, that the way we conduct our lives is going to have a whole lot to do with whether a person's going to be willing to listen to what we have to say on this matter. Any other comments or questions anybody have? Okay. Anything anybody have? Okay, we'll call it there and pick up next week. There are refreshments. John, how are you this evening? He said that he wasn't sent to the Gentiles. Oh, he wasn't? Right. Okay, he was uh, not, it's a good thing on what we was talking, he was not yet ready for the message to go to the Gentiles. And remember when they finally go to the Gentiles, which is about eight years after Pentecost, there was war. Even after these people have been converted and all, because the and remember when Peter went to Cornelius, he said, it's not even lawful for me to come in your house. And then after he went there, from, from the 10th chapter to the 15th chapter of Acts, and the 15th chapter of Acts takes place about 49 A.D., about 16 years after Pentecost, they're still debating this thing. But the Jew 
the Jewish concept to the towards the Gentile would have been very similar to what a very biased white would have had towards a black in previous generations in this country. And to say that they were equal, and, and of course you can't remember with your age, but like when uh, when I went to Freed Hardeman College, for example, Freed Hardeman College was a Christian school for white people. Blacks were not allowed. That uh, the churches that I attended in Churches of Christ were segregated. Uh, I have uh, had an experience with elders uh, getting up and, and a black coming, meeting them at the door and telling them to leave, that they were not welcome at the services. This was all of the various churches of Christ. It was that kind of bias. And so that that what Jesus needed, Jesus needed to do one thing, and that is prove to them that he was the Messiah. And then after you're 100% convinced that he's the Son of God, then you're ready to hear what he has to say about the Gentiles and everybody else. But everything that happens in the Gospels is done for one reason, and that's to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And then after that, that message will go out. But uh, he was. He didn't go to the Gentiles. They, they simply, the Jews were not ready for it, and, and neither were the, and then also, remember when the Gentiles, when he says the harvest indeed is ripe, it was the Jews that were ripe. The Gentiles really were not ripe for the harvest yet. They, they were not the ones that had been prepared for the Messiah to come. I should understand why he had an opportunity. Yeah. Why he had That would have, to receive her as an equal, though, he granted her wish on that. But he'd have been fighting from then on over just that thing with the Gentile. What did you say? I'd whip him? No. Just don't quit wearing that, you guys. Cut it out. I love my husband. Top spot. No chin. That's a real I got a discussion with my brother and his wife. We were talking about uh, it was dealing with homosexuality and several things, but the question I had with you is something his wife brought up about uh, Jesus comes across as being very compassionate and very forgiving, and, and so her, we were, we were talking about the homosexuals about should people have the right to deny housing, that kind of thing. And, and um, you know, she said, if you're going to do like Jesus, then you're going to have to respond to these people in a very compassionate way. And, and my response was, well, that's true, but at the same time, you don't, you don't have to sin. You've got to label it for what it is, and it's, it's simple. And how do you draw... Where do you draw the line on that? And, and how, do you, how do you control what your actions should be? Okay. There, remember in, um, when Paul was talking about the man who was in 1 Corinthians 5 that was living with his uh, 
fathers. Why? And he told them to withdraw from him and not to associate him. But he says, now, I'm not talking about people in the world, because you'd have to go out of the world. But if any so-called brother is an idolater, a drunkard, etc., don't even associate with him. So once they're in Christ, that covenant, new covenant, is, is for them. And you, if, if anybody's not going to walk by it, then we withdraw fellowship from him. And that's all we do. But even then it says admonish him as a brother. We still, you know, you love that individual, but you withdraw your fellowship uh, from that person. But then with people in the world, you work and are around all the time. People that are uh, living in adultery or, or fornicating or, or any of these various things. All right, when it comes to like the homosexual, that's one area that I think there's a we, we treat homosexuality like it's worse than adultery in the Old Testament adultery got the death penalty the same as, a, as, as that any type of sexual type of sin and so I'm saying I don't have any more problem like uh, working with a homosexual than I do a fornicator or an adulterer or a liar or anybody else and so there, it's all sin so my own feeling would, would be that if I'm, if I'm in contact with homosexuals in the world, then I'm going to invite that person to my Bible study, and I'd like to study Christian evidences with them, and then when you conv if I can't convince him concerning the inspiration of the Bible and Jesus, then I know there's no sense in him talking to him about the other, because in fact, I would agree with him that it, it really, it's your own choice if, if it's not. But then after... And so I think all study ought to be on, is the Bible inspired of God? And there's no question about what it says. The question is, is it inspired? And is Jesus the Son of God? Well, then after that person become convinced of that, and this is what happened to that homosexual I mentioned earlier, we studied nothing but pure Christian evidences. Then after they become convinced of that, it becomes a matter of what does the Bible teach you know, on that particular point. But where there's a problem, another along the line of what you said, that what do you do like if, if you as a private citizen have rental property and two homosexual males want to cohabit in it and rent from you, or that in, and we're already in California and Massachusetts both, Christians have been taken to court. Okay, now it's interesting. In California, the Christians lost. And the, uh, they were told that either they had to rent it out in a, sex, in a sexless type way with that not being a criteria or get out of the renting business. All right. Massachusetts, I just read this last week. They just uh, uh, finished on a case. And I was real surprised. They, uh, the, were, the AFA, American Family Association, now has a group of lawyers. You know what's working with them? Well, they're lawyers went up there and, and they won. And, and what it is, it was based on their freedom of religion, that they were, they have, were, in other words, that does my freedom end, they're saying this, these people have the freedom to do whatever, but if their freedom is going to step on my religious convictions, so here you have two states that have ruled the opposite, but the Supreme Court hasn't dealt with it yet, and eventually it's, it's going there. But then that's the area, if, if I own rental property, I could not in good conscience rent it out to homosexuals or lesbians, and I, but I would tell them that uh, you live the way you choose. I differ with you, and I cannot in good conscience 
Right. Really, really okay, well, that's, that's kind of the position I took with him. We were talking about the political situation and all, and, and, uh, and then we talked about this this chance that they may try to pass a law to grant homosexuals equal rights, equal rights for sexuality. Right. And I was talking about why I would be against that kind of thing. Right. And I use that same kind of thing. And if a person's got property and two homosexuals come and want to rent property, then if they, if the owners think that's wrong, then they should have the right to deny that, right. that rental. If they pass that law the way they're wanting to, like in Colorado where it was put in some of the others, you would not have that right. Yeah. It would be. It'd yes. be just like they're we trying to make it, it in front of everybody. And they're trying to make it like that it, would uh, drive them uh, in there. the race thing, but there's a totally different thing. Here we're talking about behavior. With the race thing, you're talking about absolutely nothing involving behavior. Just I to get But you know, most of the rights the homosexuals have got. Ha have come in under these laws that were passed for civil rights. And it's interesting to me because I can remember back when they were passing some of those laws with good intention because of the prejudice against races, there were people warning then that these laws were going to open the door for a lot of other things in, in their right. I mean, you don't, uh, we, we're at the point now that you can own your own business. And you may very well want just men in a particular area, or you may want just women and all, and you can't do that. I mean, you may have a situation where you want just a black, or, or, or whatever it is, but you, even owning your own business, you cannot sit back and and, and do that kind of thing. And, and, and we actually have maybe a weakness built in our system as a result of it. Look at Clinton when he picked his cabinet. That it wasn't, let's go out and get the absolute best people it's, I'm going to have so many women, I'm going to have so many blacks, I'm going to have so many Jews, etc., and and then we'll work that way. And I mean, that was the criteria over and above getting the best person. 